What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Heath has been sick over the past few days, so I'm going to be the one telling most of today's story, but he's going to be right here with all of us and saying as much as he can today. Yes, thank you guys so much for your patience. I'm a little under the weather, but, you know, Daphne's got this. I got this. So today, let's start off the show as we always do by giving shout outs to everybody who gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week. Thank you so much to Barb from Franklin, Massachusetts. Love you, Barb. Thank you to Jen from Portland, Oregon. And thank you so much to Diane from Kansas, who said I was her hero. Going to try not to let that get to my head. And then we have a big thanks to Jonathan from Houston, Texas, Julia from North Carolina, and Wendy from Colchester, Connecticut. Thank you so much to Randy from Arizona, Brandy from Louisiana, and Maria from Miami, Florida. And then we have Wendy from Idaho, Giovanni from Utah, and Cheyenne from Seward, Alaska. Thank you so much to Jen from Holland, Michigan, Rima from Denver, and Emily from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And a big thanks to Marco from San Juan, Puerto Rico, Ali from Jacksonville, Florida, and Eddie from Bergen, Norway. Thank you so much to Eva from Belgium, Kurtu from Finland, Haley from Australia, and then last but not least... Ellen from Sweden, Lita from Finland, and Joe from the UK. Thank you guys so much. And then, of course, big thanks to our newest patrons, Shelby, Kat, Bridget, Ian, Krista, and Alyssa. Big thanks to Leonala, Mandy, Carrie, Amanda, Ashley, and Danielle. And then last but not least, we have Taylor, Beverly, Lauren, Callie, Gabrielle, and Kalea. So thank you guys so much for helping us out. If you guys want bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Also, real quick announcement. We have some new merch up for you guys. We have some new sweatshirts, hats, and some t-shirts and other things. So go over to our website, goingwestpod.com, click the shop tab, and yeah, pick yourself up some GW merch. Not gonna lie, we got some cute stuff in. I'm actually wearing my favorite pullover right now. It's the black Going West pullover, and I've been living in it this whole quarantine. I'm not going to lie. And also remember, if you guys are the $10 patron, you guys will have 25% off of all merch items. So remember that as well. All right, guys, this is episode 63 of Going West. So let's get into it. In 2008, a 21-year-old mother of two was abducted from her home in Northport, Florida. While in the car with her captor, she was able to make a crucial call to 911 in hopes that they track her location. But when the local sheriff's office dropped the ball, her life was at risk. Numerous other calls came into the station that afternoon as police covered three separate counties looking for this young woman praying that they would find her alive. This is the story of Denise Amber Lee.
Denise Amber Goff was born on August 6, 1986 in Inglewood, Florida to Sue and Rick Goff. Inglewood is a quiet beach town located along Florida's southwest Gulf Coast with a population of around 14,000 people. Denise's father, Rick, worked as a sergeant for the sheriff's office throughout her childhood, and he raised his family within the Methodist Church. In 2004, Denise graduated magna cum laude from Lemon Bay High School. So she was an honor student and had a very high GPA. Denise was definitely more of a quiet bookworm growing up. She was incredibly smart and loved learning. While she was in high school, she met Nathan Lee, who goes by Nate. He was two years older than her, and he graduated in 2002, and he was definitely more of like a cool guy. He loved sports, and they were complete opposites. But Denise really developed a liking to him. So when she was a senior and he was out of school, she asked him out. They kept in touch over the years, and they went on a date. To their surprise, it went really well, and with Valentine's Day around the corner, he bought her a $40 ring with a heart on it. Denise and Nate fell in love, and about a year and a half into dating on August 20th, 2005, the two got married at First United Methodist Church in Punta Gorda, Florida. It was very important to both of them to have a family together, so they were quickly expecting their first child, who ended up being a son. They named him Noah. About two years later, they had another son, Adam. Since Denise was busy raising children, she didn't pursue her college degree as she had originally planned, and she didn't work. Nate had three jobs to support the family, and although that was hard on all of them, they surrounded themselves with a lot of love, and he and Denise were so happy to be raising children together. They rented a house in Northport, Florida, which was the town that neighbored their hometown of Inglewood. They liked the area because it was rural, close to the beach, and most importantly, close to their families. But Denise's dad wasn't too happy about them living there. The house was brand new with three bedrooms, but he described it as being, quote, in the sticks. Much of the area was under construction, but it was all they could really afford at the time, and Denise and Nate were just happy that they could have a new home to raise their family in. The two were incredibly close. They spoke on the phone as much as they could throughout the day while Nate was at work. So while Denise was home with the kids, you know, he would call her or she would call him and they would just keep up to date with each other throughout the day. But on Thursday, January 17th, 2008, things were different. It was a fairly rainy morning when Nate left the house to work his electric meter reading job. That day, Denise stayed home with the boys, as usual. At this time, Denise was 21 years old, Nate was 23, Noah was 2, and Adam was just 6 months old. At 11.09 a.m., Nate called Denise to say hi. At the time of this call, it was about 72 degrees Fahrenheit, or 22 degrees Celsius. So even though it was kind of drizzling that day, it was still pretty warm and very humid. Like, the humidity was 90%. I've never been to Florida, but I could imagine the humidity there. Yeah, I've been to Florida once and it was very humid. So they had the air conditioning on a lot even in the winter months because in January it's winter in the United States. So they just kind of had the AC running as much as they could to try to get the humidity out of the house. So during Nate's call with Denise, he told her to make sure that the windows were open and to turn the air off so they could save money. And she told him that she had already done that since it was such a nice day outside. They got off the phone and Nate continued to work throughout the day until around 3 p.m. When he got off work, he called Denise, but she didn't answer the phone. 
This was unusual for her because she always answered the phone. I mean, like I said, she was home all day. So Nate kept calling her, but she wasn't answering any of his calls. Within the 25-minute drive home, he'd called her eight times. He knew something had to be wrong, but he didn't let himself overreact. There, you know, obviously could be a ton of reasons why she wasn't answering the phone. Right, exactly. And probably in this situation, you're always kind of thinking the worst and hoping for the best. Well, even if I call you and you don't answer, I'm like, where is he? Why isn't he answering? You kind of just sometimes assume for the worst. Who knows why? Who knows why we do that? You know, she could have been in the shower or she was just playing with the boys and her phone was away or to the side. I mean, I got a call this morning and my phone was in my pocket and I just didn't feel it. So things happen. But when Nate turned around the corner onto their street, he began to panic a bit. He noticed that the windows and the curtains were shut. And like I just said, hours ago, Denise said that they were open. When he ran inside the house, he noticed that it was hot and that the windows were not latched shut. Whenever they closed the windows, they always locked them. So he ran around the house looking for Denise and the kids, but he didn't see his wife anywhere. He did find the boys laying together in the same crib, which they never did since Adam was six months old and Noah was two years old. He then saw that Denise's cell phone and her keys were laying on a chair. So then he knew something was wrong. Nate immediately called 911 at 3.29 p.m. So Nate explained to the police that his kids were in the house alone and he had no idea where his wife was. They asked Nate if there were any signs of forced entry and if any money was gone. But Nate explained that everything looked normal except for the fact that Denise was not there. Nate then called Denise's father, Rick, who, remember, was a veteran of the sheriff's department and had worked for them for over 25 years. That's when they discovered that Rick had also had trouble reaching Denise that day. He had left her a voicemail a little bit earlier, asking her to come over for dinner. And when Nate called him, Rick was expecting it to be about coming over that night. So that's what he brought up right when he answered the phone. But Nate instead informed him that Denise was missing. And when Rick asked him what he was talking about, Nate said, I'm telling you, she's missing. And in any missing persons investigation, the police look at people closest to the victim. And when there's a spouse involved, they're the first ones that they look at, as we all know. But although Rick didn't know a lot about the details regarding his daughter's disappearance, he knew that her husband Nate could not be involved. So as an officer of the law, he wanted to make sure that the police wouldn't be wasting any time looking into Nate. So he told the Northport Police Department to get a helicopter and canine units out to his daughter's home immediately. He had also informed his chief and department of what was going on, even though it was a different jurisdiction. When police arrived to Denise and Nate's home at around 5 p.m., so an hour and a half after she was reported missing, they learned something huge. And just to be clear, Rick hadn't worked for the Northport Police Department. He had worked for a neighboring sheriff's office, the one in Charlotte County, so it was pretty close by. Jennifer Ecker was the Lee's only next-door neighbor, and she gave the police some information. To explain their house a little better, they're situated on this big, sweeping corner. I tried to write this out as best I could, so just try to follow. Think of these two houses cuddled in the sweep of the letter U. There's one house to the right of the Lees. Both of their front yards have grass, and the Lees have one tree in their front yard, but otherwise it's totally open. But behind both of these two houses is a wall of trees until you go around the corner, then you'll start to see other houses, but they're very spread out. 
So the only house that's in view of the Lee's home is the one right next door on the right-hand side, which is Jennifer Eckert's house. And across the street is just a huge wall of trees. And a bit behind those trees is the highway. So it's definitely a very private area with lots of greenery. And this is just an important visual, so you all know that the only person that could have witnessed anything that happened at the Lee's house would be Jennifer Eckert. And even she didn't have the best view unless she was looking out the window or if she were outside, since the houses were obviously side by side. For an actual visual of the street and the houses, check out our Instagram at Going West Podcast or our Twitter at Going West Pod. So I just said this was Jennifer Eckert's house. It wasn't really her house. She was staying with a relative, but just so I don't confuse anyone, I'm just saying that it's her house. I know that she had been staying there for a little bit, but I'm not sure how long, but she was there for a while. Jennifer was staying with family, and on the afternoon of Thursday, January 17th, 2008, around 2.30 p.m., Jennifer was sitting in the living room. Since the street, as I said, was a little more private, not many cars drove by. So when Jennifer saw someone coming down the street, she took notice. A dark green Chevy Camaro pulled into the Lee's driveway just 30 minutes before Nate got off work and about an hour before he arrived home. Jennifer went outside and noticed that a white male was sitting in the car and was in the driveway for around 15 minutes just chilling there. She went back inside her own house or her relative's house to sit on the couch and mind her own business. And about 10 minutes later, she noticed the Camaro driving away. Jennifer even told the police that the Camaro had a black bra on it. And for those who don't know, there are things called car bras, which are made to put on the front bumper of your car to stop bugs and rocks from hitting your car. And it also helps prevent dings and scratches. And it's kind of funny that you brought this up because, um, like, if you've ever gone into, like, a quiet, peaceful neighborhood, you notice that a lot of the uh, residents in that neighborhood will kind of be sort of alarmed when they see a car that they don't recognize coming in. Because my family lives in a cul-de-sac, and when we see random cars pull in, we're like, hmm, like, I wonder who the fuck that is, you know? That is true. I've noticed that one being at your parents' house. So, I mean, this was a smaller town, too. Like I said, around 14,000 people. So definitely a smaller town. And like I said, super private street, so I understand her... Yeah, Alarm. I could see how she would be concerned seeing this this green Chevy pull into the neighborhood. And so much so that she went outside to see who it was. And this wasn't even her house. So that's why I say that I think she'd been there for a little bit, staying with her family. So now police had a suspect and they issued a be on the lookout, also known as a bolo, for this man. Denise's father, Rick, went to the media and any other outlet that he can think of to get this story on the news. At this point, he was positive that his daughter had been abducted. Police were stopping everyone on the road who looked suspicious and were out there searching for this Camaro. At 6.14 p.m., so nearly three hours after Denise went missing, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office received a 911 call from a woman claiming to be Denise Amber Lee. And by the way, their house in Northport and both Denise and Nate's hometown of Inglewood are both in Sarasota County. So this is the local county sheriff's office. We wanted to include the 911 clip, but it's really bad quality because the only recording I could find is when they played it in court. So I'm just going to play like a little small clip so you can hear just a teeny bit of it. And then we're going to explain what's said in the call. Here we go. 
So as you guys can tell, this woman is incredibly distressed. Exactly. And the 911 operator was trying to get as much information from this woman as possible. And this was so that she could help, but she also wanted to make sure that this wasn't a hoax. Since the case had hit the media, it was a concern that the call could be a fake. Denise kept pleading that she just wanted to see her family again. When the operator asked her if her name was Denise Lee, she said, "Uh Uh-huh. She was trying to be discreet so her captor didn't know that she was on the phone with the police, which is really smart. The operator then asked Denise if she could tell them what street she was on. Denise said no. The operator then asked if she knew the guy she was with. Denise again said no. The operator told her it was hard to hear her because the radio was too loud, and Denise can be heard saying, I can't hear, it's too loud. Then, Denise continued to plead to see her family and her kids. She was able to sneak information in as if she was talking to her captor. So she talked about the green Camaro and asked the captor to take her back to her house on Latour Avenue. So she was really smart in this, trying to give the police as much information as possible, but without letting him know that she was on the phone. Right. She's not trying to give it away, but she's trying to drop some breadcrumbs. The call lasted about six minutes, and Denise finally said, Are you going to help me? Are you going to let me out now? Help, please. Then the captor is heard saying, where's the phone? And Denise responds, I don't know. Then the phone call went dead. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. 
Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west. Before that quick break, we discussed the 911 call that the Sarasota Police Department received from Denise. Police played this clip for Rick, Denise's father, and he confirmed that it was definitely her voice, which only heightened his concerns. My first question regarding the 911 call with Denise was, why the hell didn't police track this call? I mean, it's 2008. They have the technology to pull the location in a six-minute time span. But apparently, Denise was using the abductor's phone and it turned out to be a throwaway phone that didn't have the GPS tracking police needed to determine the location of the call. But police were able to get pings off cell towers, so they knew that she was in the general area. They just didn't know exactly where she was. Okay, so this guy is basically using a burner phone, correct? Yes, that's what it seems like. Meanwhile, police were going to work to figure out whose name was connected to the phone that Denise had called 911 from. So... They got the cell tower pings, and now they can at least figure out whose phone this is, so they don't have nothing. They discovered that it belonged to a man named Michael King. And when Denise's father, Rick Goff, and her husband, Nate, heard the name, neither of them knew who it was. So they knew this man was a stranger to Denise and the whole family, which only kind of made the whole situation scarier. But now that they knew who he was, we're going to go to the other side of this story for a minute. 
we're going to talk about what has happened to Denise up to this point. At around 2.30 p.m., Michael King went into the Lee's home where he found Denise on the back porch cutting her son Noah's hair. He held her at gunpoint, tied her up, and threw her into the back seat of his car before driving her to his house, which was nearby in the same town of Northport. Apparently, he had a room in his house he called the Rape Room, where he duct taped Denise and sexually assaulted her multiple times. So, the fact that he doesn't know Denise, or, or maybe I'm getting this wrong, but I just, I always find it so strange when abductors go into homes and they take people without knowing if another male is there at the home, if the husband is home. It's just, uh, it's like taking a huge chance. So in, in my opinion, I feel like he had at least been casing the house and watching to make sure that she was home alone with the kids. That's what is believed to have happened. And we'll definitely get into more of that later. What is really interesting to me about this whole situation is that Jennifer Eckert, remember the neighbor, that she had walked outside and seen him sitting in the car. But then like, it's so sad to think about Michael putting Denise into the back of his car and Jennifer sitting on her couch and missing that part. They, the car drives away and she doesn't know that her neighbor has been abducted. Right, because she had come out of the house beforehand And I mean, just maybe a few minutes later or or even possibly a few seconds later, she could have caught Denise's abduction. The way that the couch was situated, you can see out the front window, which is how she saw the Camaro driving back out of the street. But she didn't know that Denise was inside the car or what had happened. She probably assumed that it was like a friend of the family or something. Right. And hindsight's twenty twenty, So it's not like she, you know, had any idea that Denise was being taken. In retrospect, I'm sure she wishes that she had stayed outside a little longer so she could have witnessed that, so she could have called police. But in situations like this, sometimes those things just happen. The information that she provided alone, just saying that the Camaro pulled into the driveway at this time, was in the house for about this much time, like that in itself is so helpful. So at least she could provide some kind of information. Right, exactly. And, and you know, I think everybody's pretty grateful that she was actually able to identify this car and give police something to go on. So let's talk a little bit about Michael King. He was born on May 4th, 1971. So at the time of this crime, he was 36 years old while Denise was 21. Michael had been working as a plumber for many years, but for the months leading up to Denise's abduction, he was unemployed. And because of this, his house was potentially getting foreclosed. He had also been divorced for 10 years, and many people would later say that his behavior became slightly erratic after his wife left him. He started causing trouble with neighbors and got in trouble with vandalism. Michael wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, and he had a fairly low IQ. This was thought to be because of a sledding accident that Michael had as a child, which is really scary to think about, because ever since it happened, something wasn't quite right because of the brain trauma that the accident caused. Michael also took care of his 12-year-old son by himself after the divorce. After Michael King raped Denise Lee in his house, he put her in the back of his Chevy Camaro again and drove over to his 45-year-old cousin, Harold Muxlow's house. When he got there around 6 p.m., Michael asked to borrow a shovel, a flashlight, and a gas can. Harold hadn't seen Michael in around nine months, but he fetched the items for him to borrow. When he asked Michael what it was for, 
He said his lawnmower was stuck and he needed to dig it out. And in Harold's mind, he's like, okay, that's happened to me before. This is no big deal. And they kind of caught up for a minute, like I said, because they hadn't seen each other in a while. And Michael said that he had quit his plumbing job and moved his trailer near Ocala, which is about two and a half hours north of Northport. He also mentioned that his house in Northport was potentially facing foreclosure. Throughout their conversation in the driveway, Harold remembers Michael acting fairly calm, except for towards the end, he kind of started to act like he was in a hurry. When Michael was putting the shovel, flashlight, and gas can into the car, a girl screamed, call the cops, from inside the car. When Harold looked, he really only saw a silhouette of someone's head and then their knees between the front seats, you know, as if they're sitting in the middle back seat, because it was dark outside, so he really couldn't see what was going on in the car or who it was. Harold asked Michael what was going on, and Michael responded, don't worry about it before getting into his car and driving away. Harold originally thought that it was Michael's girlfriend, because Michael was known to have crazy girlfriends, and he figured that they were just having some drama, especially since the last time he'd met Michael's girlfriend, he thought she was psycho. But he still had a bit of a weird feeling about it. Apparently, Michael didn't cause much trouble, except for, like I said, the whole vandalism thing. I don't know if his cousin really knew about that and his neighborly troubles, but, you know, Michael kind of kept to himself. He didn't do drugs or drink, but he did have the tendency to make up stories. Apparently, Michael had a big imagination. For example, he would tell people that he was once a male dancer, and he would lie about having a bunch of girlfriends at once, which these seem like pretty harmless lies. So Harold didn't expect Michael to be doing anything really bad. Michael sounds like he's kind of insecure. Yeah, he's got some stuff going on. It's kind of strange to me that... Harold wouldn't have done a little bit more investigating, especially if he had heard the word specifically call the cops. And this is a good lesson for everybody. If you ever hear somebody in a car saying, call the cops, you should probably call the fucking cops. I totally agree with you. I think in his mind, maybe to him it was like, oh, his girlfriend's pissed off and and she's mad at him, so she's being dramatic, which, I mean... Sure, sure. And, and I'm not trying to blame Harold at all for the situation, because, like I said, you know, before hindsight is twenty twenty. you never know exactly what the situation is, but I can just say that if you do hear somebody say, call the cops, you should probably call the cops. Also, something I forgot to mention is, so when she said call the cops, Michael had been putting the shovel and the gas can and the flashlight in the back seat, So he was like on the other side of the car opening the back seat door when she screamed this. And instead of going around to the driver's seat, he climbed into the back of the car and over the center console to sit in the driver's seat. So it was just like really like what the fuck is going on right now? This is it was just weird. I'm curious. I'm curious where Harold was in relation to the car. When Denise yelled, call the cops, was he in front of the car? How far away was he? Was the car door open? Was her mouth muffled by some sort of cloth or something? From what I could tell, Michael had pulled into the driveway facing forward and they were standing outside the garage kind of in front of the car. You're just outside the house saying bye. You know, when someone picks something up, you usually stand in the driveway. And then Michael had gone around to the other side of the car And like I said, it was dark outside or almost fully dark outside. And so I think he was trying to be inconspicuous by putting the stuff in the back of the car. And maybe when he had gotten out of the car, he was like, don't make a sound kind of thing. But then she did. 
Sure. And and I'm kind of also wondering, like, how loud was this scream? How loud was the call the cops? Was it, you know, mild? Or was it like a scared to death, call the cops, I'm screaming for my life kind of thing? Because that does make a difference here. I think if it had been, I mean, I really don't know. He He never, I read so many different articles about him, you know, giving interviews and stuff, and he didn't go into that specific. It was enough to concern him. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what he did after Michael left because it did concern him. But in the moment, because it all happened so fast, in the moment, he's like, it's just girlfriend trouble. And then once Michael left, he was like, maybe it wasn't. Right. And and I don't want to get too hung up on this detail, but I am pretty curious about it. So, I mean, he had a really bad feeling about it, and it got worse as Michael drove away. So he decided to call his 17-year-old daughter, Sabrina, and told her about what happened with Michael. Sabrina didn't really know Michael at all because he wasn't very close to the family. So Harold asked Sabrina to come over to watch her grandmother at the house so that he could leave and go check Michael's house to see what was going on. But again, It was kind of like, I'm going to go gauge the situation personally instead of being dramatic and calling the cops. And I think that's what I read in one interview with him is he didn't want to overreact. Right. And this is also his family member, regardless if they aren't that close. He's still family. So he probably is thinking, I just want to check it out before I send in the alarms. And Michael wasn't known to like kidnap people. So I don't think his mind was really going there. Because in his mind, Michael just wasn't really capable of that. When Harold arrived to Michael's house, he didn't see his Camaro or a stuck lawnmower. So he knew that something was wrong, especially because he left after Michael did. So he would assume that he would have been home by the time that he got there. So he tried to call 911 on his cell phone, but for whatever reason, the call would not go through. Luckily, unbeknownst to him, before Harold had even gotten to Michael's house, like minutes prior, Sabrina had called 911 at 6.23 p.m. Nine minutes after the call from Denise came into the police, Sabrina, who, remember, is Harold's daughter, she called 911 to report what her father had told her because she was like, that's weird, Dad. So we got to tell the authorities about this. Yeah, let's do the right thing and tell someone. Exactly. And she told the police that Michael had tied a girl up in his car, which was probably true, but it's not something that Harold told Sabrina, nor that Harold even saw, since he could only make out a silhouette. She then told police that Michael borrowed a shovel, a gas tank, and something else that she'd forgotten, which was a flashlight. So police were now even more aware that Michael King was their guy, and that he abducted Denise Amber Lee. Just after the operator got off the phone with Sabrina, yet another call came into the police station. It was from a woman named Jane Kowalski. She was at a red light next to a dark-colored Camaro on the Sarasota-Charlotte County line. But the call went into the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, which was a different police department and jurisdiction from the Sarasota County. And Charlotte County didn't know about Denise's 911 call. Charlotte County was where Rick had been an officer, so they were aware of Denise's disappearance. They just didn't have as much information as Sarasota County did. Jane Kowalski told the police that there was a child in the car next to her who kept banging on the back window. She also heard someone screaming, get me out of here, from the back of the car. So Jane immediately believed that it was a child abduction. And 
I mean, she assumed this. She didn't see who it was in the back seat. She just saw a hand coming up and smacking the window. So I think in her mind, she just went, it's a kid. You know, maybe that's just something you assume. But the driver saw Jane notice what was going on. So when the light turned green, the man didn't move, which forced Jane to start driving because they were at they were both at a light and he was like, oh, she knows something's up. I'm not moving. The Camaro then pulled up behind Jane's car. So she kept an eye on him from behind her in her rearview mirror with intentions to track where he was going so she could tell the police. But again, police didn't know right away that this could be connected to Denise's abduction. They thought that it was something else entirely. And I think it was probably partially because Jane said it was a child abduction as if she knew, which is not her fault, but it's a tough situation. Jane told the police that she was on Chamberlain on the 41 going south. She said that she thought it was a blue or black Camaro. Since it was dark, she couldn't tell the color for sure. So I'm assuming that this also might have made a difference because the police were looking for a green Camaro. But again, I really don't think that the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office knew anything except for that Denise was missing. I don't know if they were aware to look out for a green Camaro because the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office, they had the most information here. And I can't believe that little shithead tried to pull a move on Jane and just not go with the green light. But Jane was smarter than that. She kept her eye on him. Well, so creepy that he noticed that she noticed that something was wrong and he was like, I'm not moving. It's just creepy. Yeah, he he knew that he was kind of found out. Which I think also made him look more guilty to her. And then she was like, okay, this is definitely an abduction because he looks guilty and he's not moving. Right. What a dumbass. I mean, honestly, that like you just said, that makes you look way more suspicious if you're not moving at a green light. Well, and she also made direct eye contact with him. And she said that she made a face that kind of said, what's going on? And then that's when he kind of hung back. So again, he pulled up behind her. And then she noticed that he was turning left on Toledo Blade. So since she was in front of him, she couldn't make that same turn. And she told the police this on the phone and they said, can you turn and follow him? But there was too much traffic to make the turn safely. So she couldn't do anything except for tell the police what she did know, which was that he was a slightly chubby white man with whitish hair. Since Jane wasn't able to follow him, the dispatcher told her that a deputy would meet her in Port Charlotte, which was nearby to get a proper statement, and they'd send a car to come find the vehicle she explained. I feel like what they should have done, and I'm just taking a wild guess here, but I feel like they should have just sent out multiple cars to that specific road. I mean, well, that was their plan. That's what I meant by send a car out. I meant like send out the troops. Right, right. But but having having Jane meet them And then sending people out, I feel like is kind of counterproductive, wouldn't you say? I think it was at the same time, like someone's going to meet you to talk to you and then other people are going to go looking for this guy. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, that's kind of what I was gathering there. But the biggest issue here is that once they got off the call, Jane's information was never entered into the police's dispatch system. So officers didn't jump on this like the dispatcher had said. And because of that, the police, who could have surrounded the entire area where Jane had made the call, didn't even know where Michael was. As far as I could tell from what I read, it kind of seemed like it was a case of, oh, I thought the other person entered it into the system. So they completely dropped the ball and they lost their chance at saving Denise's life without even realizing it. Wow, what 
shitty circumstances. I don't even know how that ha- like how do you how do you think someone else is entering it? How do you not enter it during that entire call? I mean, I I've never been a 911 dispatcher, but I saw the call and she was on that shit right away. And by the call, I mean the movie with Halle Berry if you haven't seen it. It's crazy. Go watch it. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, like ours, that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up. And this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with Dash Pass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. At 6.35 p.m., so 10 minutes after Sabrina Muxlow called 911 and right after Harold stopped by Michael's house, Harold drove over to a 7-Eleven convenience store to call the police because his cell phone, for some reason, was not working. He told them that his cousin Michael drove a 1995 green Chevy Camaro and that he thought someone had been taken against their will. So all within a 30-minute time span, four people had called the police to report suspicions regarding either Michael King and or a Camaro. Police surrounded three counties with a helicopter looking for this car while police sped over to Michael King's home to see if he had gone back there. But when they arrived to his home at 6.42 p.m., he wasn't there. They searched the house and found duct tape with strands of hair on it and discovered restraints on Michael's headboard, which kind of told them that Denise had likely been kept there for hours. They also found Denise's clothes, a single shell casing, the shovel, and Michael's cell phone, but the house was empty. Other officers were at Harold Muxlow's house getting the full story on his cousin's visit that evening. And can I just say that this typically doesn't happen. You don't usually see in these type of cases 
that there are so many witnesses to crimes and good on all of these people who reported all of this stuff. I feel like they did their very best. That never really happens all that often. Well, that's why I thought this case was so interesting because of all of the calls to 911, all these people trying to save this woman's life. And I was just actually just listening to an episode on this podcast about how a lot of the time when crimes are committed in public, a lot of the time people don't do anything about it. And there was one specific case where this girl had been stabbed in the back uh, multiple times and raped in public. And there were multiple people who saw this happening, but they were too afraid to do anything or call police. And then finally, one woman had stepped up and called, but it was far too late. It's really sad, but that is true. I remember where Heath and I live, we're near a main street and it's a long straight road. And so basically someone had been hit by a car where I guess these these two guys were, what's it called? Racing? Street racing? Yeah, street racing. Yeah. These two guys were street racing and somebody was jaywalking. It was super late at night. And somehow this car didn't see this guy crossing the street and he hit him. And this guy's laying in the middle of the street. The car drives off. It was a hit and run. And all these other cars are driving by and no one's stopping. No one's doing anything. They're just driving while this dude is laying in the street and he died. It's, I don't know. I think maybe it's because people just don't know what to do. Yeah, I think sometimes it's shock or sometimes people are, are afraid something bad could happen to them. You know, sometimes people are like, hey, I'm just going to stay out of this. But honestly, guys, if you see something, definitely say something. Well, just like how they say, if you're if you see a rape or something like that, say fire instead of rape, because more people will come if there's a fire instead of an assault. Right. And fucked up. In any case, if you see something, just make sure that you tell somebody, whether it's the police or or whoever. And one quick note on this, too, is that, like I said, with Harold, he didn't want to overreact. So he was like, I'm going to see this through and not call the police, not jump to conclusions. But at the same time, if you think something bad happened, you may as well just call the police because if it ends up being nothing, great. But if you don't call the police and it ends up being something, that's way worse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. About two and a half hours passed and no other calls regarding Michael King or Denise Lee came into the police. So police had no idea where Michael could have taken her. But at 9.16 p.m. that night, a police officer spotted a dark green Camaro with a black car bra on the front bumper and pulled them over. At this point, it had been seven hours since Denise's abduction. Michael King was behind the wheel of the car, but Denise wasn't in the back seat, or anywhere in the car for that matter. He was pulled over just six miles away from where Jane had seen him. Michael decided to tell a story to the police when they asked him where Denise was. And by the way, this was recorded on police cam. So Michael said that he got hijacked and that he and Denise had been victims of an abduction, which is hilarious. I mean, what a way to spin the story. Right. And at this point, uh, police have been to your fucking house, buddy. They've seen They've seen the evidence at your house. Right, but he told them that they had both been blindfolded, so when the abductor got rid of Denise, he didn't know where that had happened. And to me, I mean, this is a really bad lie, because, I mean, why would he just be driving his car all casual after being abducted and not call 911? Like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense, dude. Great story. Well, he's definitely a dumbass, and... I think everybody who is called into the police department knows that it's his car. Harold knows that it's his car. You're not fooling anybody. 
Michael then took the cops to the supposed area where he and Denise's abduction had occurred, which wasn't far from his house at all. There was nothing at that location that proved Michael's story to be true, and they didn't believe him anyway, especially, like he'd said, with all the calls that they'd received that made him seem like he was the enemy. So police charged him with kidnapping. But they still had no idea where Denise was. They just hoped wherever she was that she was alive. When police searched Michael's car, they discovered a cell phone battery, a blanket, the gas can borrowed from Harold, and a heart-shaped ring. It was later determined that this heart-shaped ring was the one that Nate gave Denise on their first Valentine's Day together, which I mentioned in the beginning of the story. Oh man, that's seriously so heartbreaking. I know, and she never took this ring off. And it's possible that she had a feeling she wasn't going to get out of the situation and she pulled that ring off in the backseat of the car to leave it as another breadcrumb. That would be, she seemed really, I mean, obviously we know she's incredibly intelligent. So just by leaving the breadcrumbs with the police or the call to 911, I didn't even think of that. You're right. This probably was a breadcrumb. But still, I mean, just how heartbreaking is that? It's so sad. And in the car, they also found the shovel, which was caked with dirt, by the way. And they also found hair that later matched to be Denise's. Michael maintained his innocence, but as soon as Harold heard about his innocence claim, he knew it had to be a lie. Hours later, at 2.30 a.m., Harold went to the Northport Jail to help police during their interrogation of Michael. Harold was under the impression that Michael snapped. Between his bad relationship, to his possible foreclosure, to his job loss, he just felt like Michael didn't have anything good going for him, so he kind of lost it. Harold told Michael that he should just confess, and he did this by putting his own daughter in Denise's position. He told Michael that Denise's father wants to know what happened to his poor daughter, just like he would if this happened to Sabrina. He told Michael to just tell police where she was, but Michael didn't budge on his story. Later that morning, volunteers and police officers scoured the area hoping to find Denise. Police used canine units to try and track Denise's scent for two days. On January 19, 2008, so just two days after she was abducted, a canine unit came upon a shallow grave in a field of marsh, just a half mile away from where Michael had been arrested two nights prior. There, they found the nude body of Denise Amber Lee laying in the fetal position. She had been shot to death by a single bullet to her head. When Nate learned what happened at the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, how they didn't enter Jane's information into the system, he sued them for mishandling such an important call, and they settled for over $1 million. I would have done the same thing. And even Rick, of course, that's, he worked for that sheriff's office who totally let like the biggest ball in this, of this case drop and like technically let his daughter die. So imagine how that feels, like your place of work is the one who fucked up. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure he's just incredibly disappointed. And when they were searching and collecting evidence from Michael King's car, they matched the palm print on the back window to be that of Denise's, which then matched up with the call that Jane had placed. So her call, I mean, again, good on Jane for calling because that ended up doing a lot later and just telling us a lot more about what was going on in that car. Right. It, it didn't save Denise's life. But it could have, but it's it could have. And also, it's possible that this case could have ended up as a cold case and possibly never solved if these people didn't tell what they had seen. Exactly. So although Michael didn't confess, they had enough on him to continue on with the trial, 
which occurred the following year on August 24, 2009. The prosecution showed a variety of DNA samples and other evidence found in Michael's car and home, including her hair, her clothes, and the fact that the earth found on the shovel matched the three-foot hole that Denise was buried in. So they, ha- I mean, they had a lot against him in this case. Michael's defense tried to make the jury believe that the evidence had been tampered with and contaminated, and that Michael's friend had actually committed the crime and framed him. But they had no evidence of that whatsoever. So, I mean, they were really just grasping at straws here. But Harold Muxlow and Jane Kowalski both testified against Michael King because they fully believed that he had been the one to commit this crime. After just four days on trial and two hours of jury deliberation, the jury found Michael King guilty of the kidnap, sexual battery, and first-degree murder of Denise Amber Lee. And just two weeks later, they sentenced him to death. Unfortunately, Michael King never admitted guilt for murdering Denise, so we can't say for sure why he chose her as a victim. Nate believes that he had seen her in public and had been watching her or possibly following her, but this can't be confirmed. Michael currently remains in custody at the Florida Department of Corrections and is one of the 83 inmates on Florida's death row, but he does not have an execution date. He's now 49 years old. Five months after Denise's murder, her husband Nate founded the Denise Amber Lee Foundation to promote proper 911 dispatcher training so nothing like what happened with the Jane call would ever happen again. He also wanted to raise public awareness of what happened to Denise and pass new laws and acts to keep people safe. Nate continued to raise Noah and Adam and he remarried 10 years after Denise's murder. To this day, he continues to fight for justice for victims, including his late wife, Denise Amber Lee. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you so much, everyone. Like I said, I'm sick, so if I said anything crazy, don't hold it against me. Next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. And if you guys want merch, we have, like, hats, sweatshirts, t-shirts. We have a bunch of cool stuff that we just added. A lot of good art on there. So head on over to goingwestpod.com and click the shop button to check it out. And if you want to see photos from this case and other cases that we've covered, head on over to our Instagram at Going West Podcast or our Twitter at Going West Pod. And if you want bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash Going West Podcast. All right. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. <laughs>